Donald Trump Jr. whining the other day that he uh, had a bank account shut down suddenly with no warning because of some conservative news site he was pushing. And I was thinking to myself, um, that's right. How's that feel, motherfucker? Welcome to our world, right? Exactly. Yeah. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Sell Porn or Die Trying. I am your host, Connor Young. I am the, the CEO and the co-owner of Why Not. I am the founder of the Why Not Chem Awards. I'm a 25-year industry veteran, and this is my show. This is my show where we talk about the business side of the adult entertainment industry. And I got to say, I'm really... I'm excited to share this episode with you, uh, even though the topic is it's a it's a it's something that's on the minds of everybody who works in adult. It's the issue of banking discrimination, financial discrimination. What's going on with these banks? What's going on with these credit card processors? What can we do about it? That's what this show is all about. My guest this uh, episode is Mike Stabile from the Free Speech Coalition. He is the director of public affairs over there. He's also a documentary filmmaker and a longtime industry veteran himself. And we're going to get into um, all kinds of topics that are that are of vital importance to adult businesses and sex workers in this episode. More on that in a moment. Before we get to all that, though, first, an important message from our sponsor, Clickadoo. Clickadoo is a digital advertising network for web and mobile channels with excellent expertise, unique capabilities, and experience in revenue maximization for publishers and advertisers. If you're looking to buy or sell sell traffic, make sure you check out clickadoo.com, C-L-I-C-K-A-D-U.com. They have a user-friendly self-serve platform, fast campaign moderation, fraud and bot filters, multiple payment methods are accepted, 360-degree ad coverage, and a qualified support team. These guys have been around for a long time in the industry. They are good guys. We know them. We appreciate them. Uh, So definitely check out clickadoo.com, C-L-I-C-K-A-D-U.com. couple announcements as well I want to make before we we get to the interview. Uh, Why Not is going to be at Exotica Chicago. So if you are attending the show, it's going to be April 21 through 23 in Chicago. Uh, we will have a booth at the show and there will be all kinds of top name talent hanging out in our booth, meeting the fans, meeting and greeting. Make sure t- if you show up to look for me, look for my business partner, Jay Copita. We will be happy to meet you there, shake your hand and talk business. So that's Exotica Chicago, April 21 through 23. Also, hey, we have the dates for Why Not Hollywood now. Happy to announce that we are actually moving the show up into August. So it will definitely be a summer show this year. So mark your calendars down. Why not community will be back at the W Hollywood Hotel August 6th through 8th. And then the very next day, August 9th, we have the Why Not Cam Awards that will be returning to Avalon Hollywood. So if you're interested in these shows, if you're talent, you should head over to uh, whynotid.com y-n-o-t-id.com and make sure you have a Why Not ID account. You're going to need that account if you want to be considered as a potential nominee for a Why Not Cam Award, uh, first and foremost. So it's important. With a talent account, you can create and publish a very simple uh, profile page on whynot.com for yourself that will include, you know, uh, links like a link list. So if you use Linktree, et cetera, this will be another Linktree for you. You can publish some of your, your best safer work photography to kind of show off your portfolio. You can do that with your one ID. And also when the award season comes around, you can campaign to be considered for a nomination with one of these pages. And if you are chosen as a nominee, this is where fans can be sent to vote for you and kind of check 
check out what you got going on. So it's it's free. It's totally free. And it's just another resource for you to get yourself out there. So definitely do that. And now I'm proud to say, Why Not ID is your, if you have a talent account there, it's actually integrated with Why Not Mail. So if you use Why Not Mail for email marketing now, you can actually have a email collection box linked on your Why Not ID model profile page that will link back to your Why Not Mail account right? So people can enter their email addresses on your free model profile page and sign up for your newsletters that way. So it's a great way to collect email addresses. You just simply log into your White ID account and then link your Why Not Mail account to it. And then you send people to your free profile page where they can sign up for your newsletter. It's as simple as that. WhyNotID.com. Check that out. And uh, also mark your calendars. Don't forget, Why Not Community August 6th through 8th. And then Why Not Cam Awards August 9th. There will be a free live stream like past years uh, for those who have to watch the show from home. But if you can get out to Hollywood and join us, uh, we highly recommend it. It's a really good time. Also, uh, one other quick thing before we get to the interview. Uh, we have another sponsor of the show. Very appreciated sponsor, Broker.XXX, which is a marketplace that's powered by a staff of highly respected adult industry veterans with decades of experience in online adult entertainment game. They offer a dedicated marketplace for buying and selling adult websites, domain names, even full businesses. Investors need to be careful when spending big money in adult, which is why it's a huge advantage to work with a team like Broker.XXX, who have been highly visible in this industry for as long as I can remember. So you're getting guys that you know have been around, will be around, they're reliable, they're accountable, uh, broker.xxx. Check them out. If you have any interest in buying, selling uh, adult businesses, adult domain names, adult websites, etc. We greatly appreciate their, their kind support. The interview this week is Mike Stabile, who is, as I mentioned, he's with the Free Speech Coalition. He's a documentary filmmaker. Uh, Mike was actually on Netflix show Money Shot recently. So if you saw that documentary on Netflix, which just came out like within the last few weeks, he is fantastic in it. Um, if you haven't seen it, you really need to see it. Definitely go check out Money Shot on Netflix. This is um, probably one of the fairest documentaries I've ever seen about our industry and really gave sex workers a voice, which is why it's so important. So we talk about with Mike, the reason why I wanted to have him on the show was I've been watching this growing threat that's coming from the financial sector right? Uh, the banks, right? The credit card processors. Uh, it's commonly referred to as banking discrimination, this issue, or financial discrimination. Uh, so we get into topics about, you know, hey, what's going on with these banks like Chase, Wells Fargo, just up and closing bank accounts for legal adult businesses with no warning, no reason, no violations. Uh, what's going on with credit card processors starting to really decide what people can and cannot sell? And then also there's issues of credit card processors sometimes uh, pulling out and entirely of certain businesses. Like, for example, when MindGeek lost their ability to process credit cards, it had a huge impact on our industry. So we get into that. Um, I ask them about the right-wing uh, religious organizations who are behind this push uh, to put pressure on on banks and credit card processors. And we talk about MindGeek specifically, the new ownership there and what that may or may not mean with respect to their ability to process payments and perhaps become 
once again, a way for sex workers to make a lot of money uh, through through their traffic. Uh, we talk about SpankPay, which there's the news that SpankPay uh, service was was shut down by the company that run, uh, runs it. Um, they cited banking discrimination as the reason why they had to make that choice. So we get into that and what's going on there and if that has to do more with adult or crypto or, or all these things. Uh, Mike is a wonderful uh, person to interview. He's got so much information and he brings up so many interesting points, things that I hadn't even thought of. Uh, uh, that I can't uh, recommend this interview uh, enough. I'm I'm looking forward to sharing this with you. I think you're going to enjoy it. So without any further ado, here it is. This is me talking with Mike Stabile from the Free Speech Coalition. Mike, really appreciate you joining us today uh, to talk about some really important topics that are facing the adult industry. So uh, I know you're a busy guy. Thank you very much for jumping on the call. I am thrilled to be here. These are really important issues and they don't get enough attention. Completely, completely agree. Um, Now, obviously, I'm really familiar with the FSC, served on the board, etc. But a lot of people listening might not be really familiar or just sort of slightly familiar with the FSC and why it's important at what it does. So can you talk about that first? Let's just get that started. You are your your title at FSC is Director of Public Affairs, correct? Yes. And and within that that is a sort of broad title that includes sort of lobbying and legislation and you know I serve as a spokesperson uh when when issues come up in dealing with press. Um but we are, you know, as you know, a small organization. We always have been. It's it's always been a bit bootstrapped. Um, the organization itself is the trade association for the adult industry and you know and its workers. Um, it got started about thirty years ago, uh, a little over thirty years ago, in the face of uh, rampant obscenity prosecutions. Right, the DOJ, the FBI, local vice squads coming in and raiding distributors, um, ordering VHS tapes to conservative areas, and then prosecuting people for violating obscenity law. Um, you know, and, and, and this was a way to sort of stabilize the business because what they would do is they would go after an individual business. It would be overwhelming for that business to defend itself in the face of a governmental threat. The federal government has endless resources. Um, and sometimes they would have multiple prosecutions going on. So it started as a fund and it became obviously a, uh, a way in which producers could, and distributors could get together and, and fight it back. Um, you know, in the years that, Followed that, it became much more right. It 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 pioneered the testing system for adult performers. Um, you know, it helped sort of organize the industry in terms of best practices, and obviously still helps face off legislative th- threats. One of the things that's interesting that has happened, you know, uh, you know, in in more recent history, you know, in in the twenty years maybe since I've been in the business is that the threats used to be the federal government. That was who was coming after you by and large, right? That was who was, that was the existential threat to the industry. Once things moved online, once credit cards became the primary method of purchasing adult content, banks and credit cards became the chief censors of the adult industry. They decided what could be sold and what couldn't be sold. Um, they decided, you know, who could have a viable business and, and who couldn't. I mean, you simply can't have a viable business if you don't have a bank or a credit card company in an online world. And so I think that what we've seen as an organization, um, especially more recently, is that the groups and the the the, the people who 
want to attack the adult industry more and more use banking and and credit cards and financial discrimination as a way to put businesses out of business. Yeah, you know, that's actually exactly what I wanted to talk to you about today. And we'll we'll delve into that topic uh, here quite a bit in a little bit. Um, That I agree, that is the existential threat to the industry. And that little transition from going from like if we're fighting the government, we have certain laws and 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 things that we can use, First Amendment, et cetera. When you're fighting private industry, it's a totally different ballgame. And that's why it's it's pretty um, frightening to me. Uh, so we're definitely going to delve into that topic. Um, before we get into that, though, I wanted just to get to know you a little bit more. And I wanted to ask you a couple of questions. The first was... Um, how did you get started in adult? What was the first thing that brought you to this industry? So I got started in adult in the early 2000s. Um, you know, I um, I had moved back. I'd been living in New York, uh, working in magazines, and I'd moved back to San Francisco. My family's originally from New Jersey. The Stabile family is actually a circus family, um, which, you know, has, has certain commonalities with the... Um, with the the adult industry, but I moved back and I was sort of looking for work. I worked as a journalist before working to an adult. And, you know, at the time it, there was a, you know, there was a massive recession, right? This was, was post 9-11, um, but the adult business was moving online. And, you know, I had a friend who worked at a, you know, a mainstream gay site and they were selling, um, you know, adult videos and DVDs at that point, right? Um, and he said, you know, these businesses are growing. If you need some extra work, you know, I need some people who need press releases written or, you know, need help sort of understanding the like the marketing and moving some of the, you know, one of the first jobs I had was with Hot House, just sort of writing scene descriptions, because in the DVD world, you didn't need scene descriptions. You just had a DVD or a VHS, right? You didn't have to break out. So it was a little stuff like that. And then, I mean, my first real job was with Naked Sword with Tim Valenti. Mm-hmm. And I know Tim well. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as do I. And I, I, I love him very much. We, but he had would just sort of, you know, Naked Sword was really taking off. He had a bunch of projects that were really interesting the Tim and Roma show, you know, which was a, a sort of an early sort of vlog um, pre YouTube. And, and, and so I sort of got on board. And from there, um, I started working, you know, because I had a history in the business uh, as a journalist and, and later as a documentary filmmaker, I understood media. And so I started getting jobs with companies that were having either issues with media or wanted to sort of expand their presence. So, um, you know, I worked with kink.com. I've worked with, you know, numerous tube sites and fan sites and, uh, you know, pay sites and then individual performers. I got involved with FSC um, around 2013, uh, you know, there were, uh, we were just sort of leading up to prop 60, which was a major, it was a mandatory condom ballot measure that, um, was widely opposed by both the, the studios and the workers, um, and became sort of the campaign strategist for there. So, um, and I, I've been with FSC ever since I still obviously have people that I work with, uh, you know, clients that are not specifically political, but that has become sort of the political work is really what drives me. Um, and, and, uh, you know, I have been active in that with or 
with and outside of FSC. Yeah, you mentioned Kink. It's funny. I um, I had the pleasure of touring the Armory building when Kink had just bought that building and they hadn't yet like transformed it. And um, we got like Jay, my business partner, I got a personal tour of it. it just it was it was mind boggling. I, I just loved that somebody in our industry owned a piece of property like that. I'm bummed that it's no longer part of our um our, our realm, but uh, it yeah. was, if anyone hasn't seen it, it was like walking into a completely different world, you know, it's just like almost like going into Disneyland, but for adult, you know, it was like when you walk through it, you're just like, wow, I'm in a different world here. This is almost like going to another country or something. I don't know. It was, uh, it was a really exciting, a really exciting place. Um, and you mentioned that you are a documentary filmmaker and I did want to ask you about seed money. Um, was that very difficult to get made? What was the process of, of, of that coming to reality? Yeah. I mean, it was so difficult to get made that I was like, I actually don't know that I want to make too many documentary films. Um, it was, you know, this was a, so I had been working at Naked Sword until I want to say probably 2008, 2009. And I was looking for a change. I had done some video work with them, um, you know, sort of BTS type stuff. And, you know, I, but I, I wanted to go back to sort of my journalism, uh, base, right? I, I was, I've been in the adult industry for, you know, probably five or six years. And I was like, I want to get back to writing. I want to go back to telling stories. And I had come across the story of, of Chuck Holmes, who was the founder of Falcon Studios and really a, um, an undersung part of, um, I don't want to say the democratic party, they wouldn't like that, but the gay rights movement <laughs> will say. Um, and okay. so, you know, at the time Falcon was, you know, was in the process of being sold and they were getting rid of all of this stuff. And I thought, boy, this is a really important story. I mean, this was somebody who was, this was a pornographer who met with, you know, had dinner with Mikhail Gorbachev and, and the Clintons and, you know, and, and just, and, and gave so much money. And there was so much, I think that, you know, in the gay rights movement, um, you know, there's so much that comes from um, from actually adult companies, right? Whether that's lending their mailing lists or funding, um, you know, some of the campaigns. But we've always sort of been pushed to the to the back of the bus, as it were. So it was a story that I wanted to tell. I had, um, you know, done a short called Smut Capital of America, which sort of, again, was an experiment in sort of me researching sort of where, what the first hardcore porn film was, right? How, how hardcore became legal in the U S and I enjoyed it, but it is, it's tremendously difficult. It takes a lot of money. I love doing many things about adult. The thing that I hate doing in my personal life and for business is raising money. It's hard for me. I don't like asking mm -hmm. for anything. Um, so I am proud of the films that I made. I continue to do documentary work, but generally um, you know, research and um, grant writing or things like that, rather than taking on a whole project. It uh, doesn't mean I'll never go back to it, but it is a lot of effort and a lot of energy. And I think that ultimately I'm a better writer than I am a filmmaker. Yeah. I think it's always a little amazing when anything gets made like into a film, because the process as an outsider who just loves film and has kind of watched that for a long time with interest, um, it's I just see the struggles all filmmakers go through and yeah, uh, it's, it doesn't look like yeah. wasn't like it fun. You know, yeah. I got kind of glamorized it when I was young and thought, oh, working in Hollywood, that would be so fun. And now I'm looking at it uh, with older eyes and seeing all the people stressing out who are trying to <laughs> get their films made and where's their <laughs> next paycheck going to come from. And it doesn't look nearly as, as fun as it once yeah. did as much as I love the product at the end of the day. Um, so uh, how important 
Do you think it is? You mentioned the gay rights movement. And I think one of the things about that movement that I think was so successful was once um, a lot of individuals from that community came forward and started telling their stories very publicly, it suddenly was a lot harder for, um, you know, people outside that community to discriminate against these human beings that they saw in front of them now versus when everyone was sort of um, keeping quiet. It's a lot easier to in your mind. It's just this other out there. Right. Um, And so I'm thinking what lessons can we learn from that with like the adult industry and how important do you think it is for the adult industry to sort of get out there, put our performers, put our people in front of the general public and tell our story? Is that is that something that you think is very important? Yeah, I would say that's probably the top priority, right? Like aside from sort of like our own survival and stability as individual actors and agents in this business, right? You always want to sort of make sure that you're okay because there's so many other forces, you know, attacking you mentally, financially, you know, uh, socially, it's, it, it, it can be hard. So, but, but beyond that, yes, coming out, you know, which was the, the sort of strategy of the gay rights movement has so many analogs in adult. And I think, and, and, in the sex work movement more broadly, um, obviously, you know, a lot of people out there outside the industry will think, well, you know, but of course these people are already out there, right? You already see them on their screen. Like you see more of them than you would, you know, your neighbor, um, how much more out can they be? And I think that, um, the success that the sex worker rights movement has had in the past few years, right? Um, and, and caveat that we are in a reactionary movement right now against sex work and against porn. But more broadly, in the past you know, uh, 10 or so years, has been because um, of a shift in terms of people coming out, not just in terms of like, I am in this video, but through social media, right? Through Twitter, through the press. I think that you know, with Prop 60, which again was the mandatory condom campaign, we had a lot of performers that came out and, and spoke to the press, right? They went to editorial board meetings with me. They, you know, they went to the, the Democratic Convention, right? They they met with, um, you know, uh, regulators, right? They they really started to tell, it wasn't just, well, I'm on film and, and I'm all here for you to see me, but I'm going to tell you my story. I'm going to tell you what happens to me. Um, and it's not what you think, right? And I think that that, that really gets the attention of people, right? They, they start to see these people as full human beings. And I think that, you know, obviously gay people were around in media before Stonewall and before the, the push to come out, but they were often caricatures. And I think that what you see, you know, what you saw traditionally in the adult industry were caricatures, right? Certainly there were people who did have stories that came out and were, were sort of more uh, phenomenons, but, and, and maybe achieved mainstream success in, in some limited way, but they weren't telling their stories. And I think that, you know, when with FSC, everything that I do, everything that we do is geared towards making sure that, that sex workers are front and center, right? That those stories are the ones that, that we are telling, um, because those are the people who are ultimately affected by this, right? Certainly, and, and often the ones with the fewest resources, you know, even if they're successful, um, they may not have as many ways to, you know, if their bank gets shut down or if, um, you know, they're kicked off of a platform. They don't necessarily always have the ballast that, you know, a bigger company might, right? With multiple revenue sources and selling DVDs here and, and have relationships with these banks or this payment processor or something like that. So I think that we always really try to make that, that is, that, that their stories are front and center because those are also the stories that are unexpected and, and 
Recently, FSC went to Washington, D.C. We had meetings with various congressional committees and, and individual offices. And, you know, I think that, that bringing um, performers with us, bringing uh, their stories if they couldn't come, are really the things that move the needle. I think that nobody, nobody trusts the porn industry, right? But if you bring someone in who says, hey, listen, this is what happened to me. And and this is the real deal, and it's not some caricature. I think that they are more than open to listen to these things. I mean, we had no pushback on the left or on the right. Both both sides said, "Oh, that's terrible." You know, whether or not we think more porn is morally repugnant, you should have access to banking. You should have you know access to credit card processing. Um, they shouldn't be making these calls. Yeah, you know, um, it's funny. Like one of the one of my theories when when I created the uh, Why Not Cam Awards. And the reason why we um, we live stream it is kind of for this reason, right? We wanted everybody to be able to see like the real people who are who are working as cam models or creators, et cetera. And um, I apologize to anyone who's heard me tell this story before, but uh, I think it's a fit in this case. Uh, after our last award show, um, we do it at Avalon Hollywood um, over on like on Hollywood and Vine. And I have a contactor I work with every year for the show. And I was in her office and she told me, um, she said, um, you know, I wanted to tell you something. The, the pe- her staff members, so like people who were working on lighting and things like that for the show, she had several of them come up to her after the show and say, um, hey, you know what? Like, I really felt like I was a part of something good, like being part of that show. Um, they felt like they were doing good work and said, uh, at least one of them told her, look, it completely changed my, my views about sex work. Right. Yeah. And because like you're talking about caricatures, that's how people I think look at like sex workers as well. And then all of a sudden here, you see these people coming together to celebrate and have dinner and, and, and accept awards and, and, and celebrate each other and talk about their work and, and how difficult that work is. Cause it's yeah. a lot lot more difficult than people think that it is. Um, it's just, uh, that was really gratifying for me because I think that really is an important thing that we have to, um, we have to address that. Um, also now moving into bank, the banking issues, cause you brought that up and that's definitely why I wanted to talk to you today. Um, for those who don't really kind of understand what's going on with some of these banks uh, with respect to the adult industry, can you just talk a little about what banking discrimination means to you and why the FSC specifically has taken note of it? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that, you know, I'd go even a little bit broader and talk about financial discrimination, right? So there's different ways in which this impacts the industry and its workers, right? One is the banks as, as you know, just the simple level of it is hard to find a stable bank if you are earning income in the adult industry. Larger banks routinely close down um, accounts with no warning and and no violations, right? Um, and the reasons for that are, are legion. Sometimes it is just a brand risk, right? A, a large bank doesn't want, they decide, they decide that somebody is a sex worker or that they are an adult performer. They're getting a check from a certain company and their policy is, you know what? We don't need that money. Um, you know, part of it is sometimes also regulations that have been put in place for the federal government around things like trafficking that end up impacting people who are doing sex work, you know, consensually and, and, uh, you know, are, are independent creators, right? Or adult businesses. Um, but a lot of it really is just sort of brand, right? That, that whether it is Chase Bank or Wells Fargo or Visa or MasterCard on the credit card front or PayPal, a lot of them just 
there's a lot of stigma with adult, right? They don't understand it. They don't understand. They hear a lot of these things coming from anti-porn groups about what the industry really is. And they think, well, you know, I don't want to be involved with that. You know, I am, you know, if you think about Visa or MasterCard, it's the most generic brand that you could imagine, right? So they, they don't want to make waves. They don't want to be controversial. They process for everyone. So the first thing we see is banking, you know, banking account closures, right? That's, that's a main thing. Um, credit cards I brought up, they control, you know, not only do people lose their credit cards, uh, individual businesses in particular, um, but credit cards decide what you can produce or can't produce, what you can sell and can't sell on your site. Um, you know, you can't, you know, I mean, based on the, their regulations. And I think that we saw that um, those things come together with the um, the uh, OnlyFans pulling its, you know, pulling it all off of its site a couple of years ago, right? The threats were so big and so existential to their business that they were going to have to get rid of all adult content in order to satisfy those banks and those credit cards. Um, we also see higher fees, right? That the industry is, um, treated as a high risk merchant, even though our chargebacks and our fraud are actually much lower than mainstream industries. But because they can, we get charged, you know, something like 10%, up to 10%, 15% on, on sales, which ultimately end up coming out of workers' pockets, right? That comes out of the percentage that, that they get. Um, you know, and then obviously mobile payments, you know, PayPal, Venmo, Cash App get closed down constantly. Uh, and so FSC has been involved with this for a while, right? And, and what we've generally tried to do is if somebody loses an account, particularly a bank account, we try to connect them to another bank or find someone who is, is taking it. You know, our own bank account has been closed down. Um, and, and we are, we're a trade association. There's nothing that we do that has anything to do with production. You know, all of our photos on the site are stock photography. There's nothing untoward, right? We're, we are a, a safe for work site, but we went to go open a bank account. Uh, a couple of years ago when they said, I'm sorry, we're not going to do business with the adult industry. And we said, but we've already got a bank account with you. And they said, well, if I were you, I wouldn't make too much noise about it, you know, or that might go as well. So it's just, it's, it's very skittish. It's wow. a very conservative industry in, you know, a lowercase C way. Uh, they just, you know, and, and like I said earlier, the groups that do not like the industry, um, routinely use this as a pressure point to try and um, to debank us. And of course, if you have, if you don't have a bank, right, if you don't have that, somebody else has to be in charge of your finances, right? Which means that particularly for sex workers, that means that you're open to greater exploitation, right? Because if you have to give that, your, your money to a boyfriend or a business partner, if you have nothing in your name and then they run away with it, you've got no recourse, right? Not only are you not building credit and, and all of that, but you don't have control over your own finances. And that is that opens you up for ex exploitation, extortion. We had, when we went to DC, um, we came with uh, one of the, the people we brought with us was Ali Eve Knox. And Ali has had 30 accounts shut down, you know, over the course of wow. her time in the industry. She's lost 30 bank accounts and, and financial accounts. When she... That's crazy. It, I mean, it's nuts. And, and when she had to, you know, apply for a mortgage for her house, right? She was bringing in money. She wanted to, to, to buy a house, build equity. Um, the bank wouldn't give her a 
mortgage, right? It had to go in her husband's name. Well, what happens when you get divorced, right? That becomes a, you know, a, a potential source of strain. So I think that those are the stories that we try to bring out because I think that people outside the industry have never thought about the fact that you could lose a bank. And beyond that, if you lost your bank account, that there's no recourse, right? That there's no, well, you know, I think that in their mind, oh, well, you lost PayPal. Well, write them a letter and let them know, and surely they'll have to give you that. Um, they don't realize that, you know, people go to farmer's markets. They try to play with Venmo, right? Someone tries to send them money on a cash app, and, you know, they can't accept that. And especially if they are, you know, not publicly out, right? That is a particular point. Well, why can't you use a cash app? I don't understand. And then, you know, you're forced into an awkward situation where you either disclose, well, they closed it because I'm a sex worker or, or um, you know, you have to operate with cash somehow. It's 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 really, really difficult. Yeah, that's it's it's so frustrating um, to hear these stories. I know Ali really well, by the way, and I, I hope everybody understands this is not something that that only affects sex workers. Like you mentioned, FSC having a problem. Pretty much every company I know, an adult, has had this issue hit them. I even know an attorney who had one of his accounts shut down simply because he got payment for services, I assume, from a company that that these banks didn't like. And I'm wondering, my, my thought was always like, well, they must be paranoid that Adult businesses are being used for um, money laundering or in, um, you know, maybe the online workers, they're afraid they're actually like, like engaged in um, real time sex work. And that's what they're afraid of. I'm assuming these are the things that they're afraid of. Do you have any sense that that's kind of what it is? And has any bank ever been actually punished by the federal government for doing business with with an adult company? You know, I mean, I think that those things are certainly factors. Right. Um, But. Even before all of that, it was hard to get it was hard to get banking. Right. So there are certain things in the you know, during the Obama administration, there was um, uh, something called Operation Choke Point, which was meant to um, increase scrutiny, I guess, on on what what they considered high risk industries. And that was things like guns, um, payday lending and, you know, pornography made the list. And and once there was sort of increased scrutiny, uh, once you had to do sort of more reporting to the federal government about transactions or, or things like that, um, that meant that banks said, well, you know what, I'm actually not going to work with this industry, right? If we find out somebody is working with this industry making income, we don't want to do it. Uh, there are similar regulations separate regarding trafficking, right? And and flags for trafficking. And, and certainly banks will catch a certain number of flags or something like that. There's lots of things that happen in sex work that, you know, are analogous to things that happen in trafficking, just in terms of banking. And and sometimes those flags will be misread as trafficking when it's actually sex work. So, and if you're a bank, you don't want a whole lot of flags, right? That puts increased scrutiny on you as an institution. So we will have people that work with a bank that works with an individual company is sort of fine with it. Um, but they don't want too many other companies because just inherent in our business, right? Foreign transactions, right? We get a lot of money from overseas, right? Because we have a global business mm-hmm. that tends to, um, you know, be one of those, be a flag. So you want to sort of avoid these things. One thing that we, um, and these things compound each other. We had a, a, a meeting with, um, a number of people in the financial, uh, you know, 
financial sector of adult. We had a, a, um, a, a webinar that we did, a seminar, and um, we had a bunch of people in the panel from payments and from performers. And, and one of the things that came out of it was that one of the flags that is used to shut down accounts is multiple small withdrawals or payments, right? So people making deposits, you know, on a daily or, you know, couple of weeks or, or, or withdrawing money as soon as it comes in or comes out or things like that. You know, there are plenty of reasons why people might do that, but that is associated with, um, you know, uh, prostitution. And that's something that because it's illegal, the banks are, you know, you know, scrutinize it heavily. Well, it turns out that a lot of our, the people in our industry do that because they are afraid of, you know, their payment system getting shut down. So as soon as money comes into their PayPal mm -hmm. or comes into their OnlyFans, whatever, or whatever platform they're using, they withdraw it immediately. So if you're a bank, what you're seeing is, oh, $100 here, $500 here, you know, $30 here, $1,000 here, just constantly money coming into your account, um, you know, and then, you know, people withdrawing it as well. And, and that tends to be a flag. Sometimes it's just that, again, a certain company has a big name, that check comes in and the bank decides to shut them down. We had a person reach out to us uh, last year. Hasn't been in the industry in 10 years. You know, originally did some cam work, um, had some sort of royalty check come in from one of the, the, the big streaming platforms and deposited it into their bank that a bank got shut down. So we know a lot of it is just really, you know, the banks are not forthcoming about what they're using. You know, we have to sort of read the tea leaves and, and try to... Mm -hmm you know, feel around in the dark and say, oh, I think this is what's happening. You know, is it that you have an LLC? I don't know. You know, is it that you're getting a check from this particular company? Maybe. Is it that you're withdrawing lots of different payments or you're, you, you have income that's coming in cash or the income is coming from Cyprus? We don't know. We just have to sort of guess. And, and I think that what FSC has been trying to do over the past uh, few months is really sort of get a picture of what's happening and to whom. Uh, and so we've been working on a survey. We've been putting sort of all of those numbers together. And I think that it's a, a project that um, will, for the first time, really start to give us a sense of who is being affected and how. So you mentioned earlier Chase and you also mentioned Wells Fargo. And I've heard a ton of stories about both of those banks. I know there um, anybody opening an account there is at high, high risk of, of getting flagged. Um, are there any other large banks that you would just tell people, look, you're, you're at that level of risk um, with these guys? You know, I think that if there were a good option to say, oh, definitely use this bank or they'll be fine with you. Um, you know, we might I think that we generally advise people if you know, if you've got a bank account, keep that bank account, right? Like it, it, there's no need to make waves. We don't want people, you know, committing fraud and, and saying that they're not adult or whatever, but certainly we work in generic industries. We work in tech, we work in marketing. There's lots of ways in which your income comes in that, um, you know, we work in entertainment, right? That, that banks don't right. necessarily need to, to have all of the details. Um, we're working in a legal business. But if you have a bank account, keep that bank account, you know, as long as you can, because there's no guarantee that the next bank you go to is going to, um, you know, keep you for a long time either. What we generally advise people to do is to, you know, work with regional banks, you know, work with, with smaller banks if you can. Um, I think that one, 
you build a little bit of a relationship with with that bank and with those bankers and they get to know you as a person, you know, or as a business. And even if they don't exactly know what you do, if it later comes up, they're like, well, you're reliable. You come in, you pay your bills. Um, we understand this. And, and, you know, they're trying to build a business. Whereas, you know, I think that the, the chases and the Wells Fargo's, they don't need it all, you know? And I think that from their standpoint, they'd rather not be wrapped up in a news story. Um, they'd rather not have to, you know, file all the paperwork for a flag that has been triggered. And, um, you know, it's just easier for them to, to wipe these people out. Okay. Yep. Um, it makes a lot of sense to me. And, uh, what about credit unions? Are you seeing in some of the same problems with credit unions that we're seeing with banks? Yeah. I wish that there was a, a, a solution that we could point to, to say, this is something that you should do. I think that generally, if you've got a credit union and you can access a credit union, that may be a little bit more stable um, in general than a a bigger bank. Um, and I, I know a lot of our members do use credit unions if they have access to them. Um, but not everybody has access to a credit union. And, um, you know, again, they still suffer some of the same issues that that other banks do. We actually have been talking with a, uh, uh, a a person who's actually looking at launching a credit union that would be a little bit more open to LGBTQ um, issues and 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 understand sort of the the issues faced by you know adult content creators and and sex workers around this um, because there is a lot of overlap with the LGBTQ community. But you know even then when when we we talk to them, um, you know. They're more than aware of why this is important. They they understand this as a social justice issue and are in, you know, developing it for these reasons. They still say, you know, um, our existence as a bank is going to depend on forces that are beyond us, and so we can't necessarily be the adult bank or or things like that. You know, we want to help, but. Anytime, you know, if we were to, to come in this fully, we're going to have the same issues that you are, right? There are going to be people above us. There are going to be regulators that are going to give us increased scrutiny. There are going to, you know, there's ways in which we can lose our status as a bank or, you know, um, and so it's, it's just, there's not an easy solution. I think that what we say is, is, you know, to be as, as smart as possible, um, you know, and, and, and reach out to us if you have lost banking. We recently, um, you know, we want to be able to map this a little bit better because it helps us see if, you know, are a bunch of things that, like in the fall, we had a lot of accounts that were shut down at Wells Fargo, right? In the mid uh, 2010s, around 2015, we lost a lot of chase. Um, so there are ones that we have people, you know, avoid. But again, if you've got an account there, you know, get a backup somewhere else, but, right. um, but, but, you know, don't rock the boat if you don't have to. Okay. You know, I've heard, I've heard a lot of people kind of express a desire to like sue banks for discrimination. Um, my understanding is that probably wouldn't be very fruitful from a legal perspective. Uh, is, do you have any thoughts on that? Do you think there's any path where banks could, could, could come under some sort of a class action or a, or a lawsuit coming from the adult industry for, for discrimination? You know, I mean, the issue is that, that we are not a protected class, right? If you are engaging in racial discrimination or, um, you know, health discrimination or, you know, in some cases, you know, um, discrimination over sexuality or gender or, or things like that, 
you do have a little bit more of a case. I think that there is a case to be made legislatively and and in, in the uh, among regulators for occupational discrimination, right? Source of income, and there is some history around that, right? In terms of banks who were prohibited from, um, you know, discriminating or you know or or housing that was discriminated. Uh, barred from discrimination based on things like a Section 8 voucher or um, things like money that came from the federal government for HIV relief or things like that. So there are sort of analogs that that could be used. And certainly I know that, um, you know, Alana Evans at APAG and, you know, FSC and, you know, BIPOC Collective and, and some of these have been sort of talking and trying to strategize and see if there is a way forward. I think that, you know, from our conversations in D.C., the issue was, um, you know, everybody was very open to it. And I think that, I mean, not necessarily occupational discrimination, but open to trying to find a solution. Legislation takes a long time to pass. The idea of getting, you know, Porn stars or sex workers as a protected class is not, you know, that's a that's going to take some time, right? That's not going to be the most popular thing to to push forward, um, right? You know, in, in Congress. But I think that in terms of it, phrasing it in terms of things like banking fairness, banking fairness is something that is a big issue on the right. Because what's happening is the you know the oil and gas industry gun manufacturers are being debanked right there's there are campaigns to push them you know out of Chase or or Wells Fargo or John Hancock or, or the whoever is sort of funding them so there's actually a there is interest on the right in terms of saying hey listen if you were working in a legal industry you should have access to banking right, um, right. in in Germany there is a bank that sort of has to take you. Right. That, that it's, a, it's essentially a right that you have banking as a citizen. So I think that there are ways in which it could be done. I think that a class action is probably, you know, a long shot. But, you know, I'm not a lawyer. Um, but among the things that we've discussed, I think that, that talking about this in a broader way and talking about like the right to a bank in a, in a digital society where it's getting harder and harder to use cash. You know, it, it becomes more essential that you do have a bank. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting point because I actually saw Donald Trump Jr. whining the other day that he uh, had a bank account shut down suddenly with no warning because of some conservative news site he was pushing. And I was thinking to myself, um, that's right. How's that feel, motherfucker? You know, it's like nice Welcome to, to see our world, some right? of these guys get hit with it. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And so um, I think you're right. Like one of the things and I don't want to get off on a, uh, in a tangent here, but one of the things that the um, the anti porn groups, the religious groups, morality and media, et cetera, when they transform to their kind of current strategy that I think they did rather successfully, much to my annoyance, is they looked for the rhetoric coming from the left, right? And they found yeah. ways to sort of like use that to their advantage. It was cynical, right? Mm -hmm. the, the people on the left who are falling for it are being suckered. They're being conned. Um, but they did successfully do that, right? And all of a sudden you saw people on the left who didn't understand, you know, when it was just protect the children, everyone knew that, you know, it was cynical. The Simpsons, yeah. you know, uh, made fun of that. There was eye rolls. 
But when they started taking some of the language from the left and incorporating it into their strategy, they expanded who they were able to reach. Similarly, perhaps like what you're suggesting is, hey, the right does have some, we can we can find some common ground there, whether they realize it or not, right? And that sounds like what you're suggesting. And that does sound like an interesting uh, tactic. Now, you were just in D.C. recently, uh, mm-hmm. and you mentioned this. You were talking about this a little bit. Um, I mean, from being there, from talking with these these legislators, um, do you really get – are they just blowing smoke up, up our ass because we're there? Or do you get, think these guys are really interested in maybe advancing some legislation? Like, do you think they would really get on board, or were they just kind of saying what they felt like they needed to say? No, I mean, I think, you know, um, you know, it was like we're an industry that a lot of people blow things up our asses. Um, but legislators are, are not really in the business of, you know, kissing ass for the porn industry. Right. Or or, or telling us yeah. what we, we don't want to hear. I think that and this was, you know, echoed by the people who were in the meeting with us. Right. The the lobbyists that we have in D.C. Um, that there was real interest. Right. So that. People weren't coming in and just sort of listening to us um, talk, right, and saying thank you for coming in, and that was wonderful. Um, They were asking for follow-ups, right? They were asking for – they were strategizing with us in meetings. Could it be done this way? You know, could this happen? Here's someone else that you should talk to, right? They were really engaged, um, and – you know, they continue to be engaged with us, right? And we have people who are saying, you know, actually, I want to sort of make this my issue um, or make this an issue of mine, I, I should say. I think that on the left, you see, you know, a lot of concern about how already marginalized populations, right? Um, you know, sex workers, people of color, um, queer people are all, women, all of whom sort of face banking issues aside from, you know, being in the adult industry, um, you know, are being disproportionately affected. The uh, And then on the right, obviously, there's this sort of issue of like, oh, okay, maybe this would be something where we could bridge some gaps with the left and, and get some of this this banking stuff passed. Um, so there, there was a lot of engagement. There was a lot of interest. We are going back this spring uh, in May to meet with them again. Um, and, and to meet with, with more. So I do think that there's a lot of hope in terms of legislation that, you know, we, you know, we were sort of told by like most people, like nothing gets passed in Congress anymore. And something like this is unlikely to get passed. However, we're more than happy to work with you and figure out ways in which we can stop this from happening. Right. So that might be scrutiny on the banks. Right. That might be saying, hey, listen, we want a report of how many people you have debanked and why. Right. That may be removing some of the um, the outdated or um, inconsistent directions around trafficking or the, the, the legacy of Operation Choke Point from the Obama administration. That may be sort of more public awareness about this. Right. The more scrutiny and the more sunlight that you can put on these banks, the better. Certainly the the banking fairness legislation being inv- advanced on the right is something that, you know, you know, it might make for a strange bedfellow for us. But again, we're an industry that is fond of strange bedfellows. So we will uh, or, or built on them. Um, so we'll, you know, we'll take that if we can get it and, and happily work with them. Um, but I think that a lot of what we're talking about is uh, more behind the scenes than trying to advance a piece of legislation that says, Banks, a private entity, a private company has to do business with this industry. 
Um, but you know, in the longer term, I don't think that that's it's impossible to say that we wouldn't follow a model somewhat similar to Germany's to say, yeah, banking is a right, and if you can't get it somewhere else, you can get it through this bank. You know, they have to take you. So long as it, what you're doing is, is legal. okay, yeah, and and you, I'm just curious in your in your DC trip, you did you get any chance to speak with um, Elizabeth Warren by chance, who's um, who's kind of pushed a lot of this crap, probably unknowingly, like you know, but uh, <laughs> unfortunately, she's been she hasn't been a good force with respect to the banking discrimination yeah. issue, even though she was my choice for president and everything else. But that was um, it's been one of my frustrations with her watching her just be wrong on this issue every time. You know, we actually I don't want to talk about specific offices we met with because then they'll be targeted by the antis and and flooded. I want to, you know, but I will say that Warren's office has, you know, we have had conversations in the past about regulations that affect sex workers. I think that it is something that they are open to. Right. I think that the a lot of what is pushed on the left um, is done in a way it's it's done in a vacuum, right? So they don't they, they target guns or they target fossil fuel or they 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 target um, you know hate speech or something like that and say if we can debank this this would be um, you know this is what we should do, right? Um, we don't you know or or crypto falls into mm-hmm. that as well, right? A lot of these people don't realize that like there is collateral damage to that and. You know, we are more than happy to meet with these legislators and tell them. And, and frankly, when we have met with legislators who have been sort of on that path, I won't say Warren specifically, but in terms of other legislators who have been in a similar position, they absolutely recognize this as an issue and, and actively want to be engaged in it. Um, you know, a lot of what 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 happens, you know, a lot of the the the, the fights for social justice on the left around banking are actually often about investment, right? And 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 that is sadly an industry, you know, a section of the the of the financial in, uh, services industry that adult businesses are almost entirely cut out from, right? We don't have, um, you know, a lot of we don't have a lot of public companies. We don't have investments. MindGeek was recently purchased by a private equity firm, but beyond that, you don't see a lot of VCs investing in new adult startups or things like that. No matter how big the market is. You know, I think that there are ways for us to talk about this and ways for us to educate uh, legislators. And I'm really hopeful. I, I think that every conversation that we have had with a House or Senate office has been incredibly positive. So you mentioned crypto and that brings me to, I did want to ask you about um, SpankPay, right? We got the news recently that SpankPay um, um well, the the company that that ran Spank Pay yeah. closed down the Spank Pay service specifically. Uh, they cited banking discrimination due to their adult industry ties, which makes a lot of sense based on everything that we've we've learned. Uh, I also wonder though if they were also targeted specifically because they are crypto, or or rather the new entity that came in, I guess, um, to their payment processor also didn't like the fact that they were involved in crypto. So, do you see is crypto in that same boat with banking discrimination? I were they just basically like a double whammy for for somebody doing business you with know, them? I haven't plus uh, spoken specifically with Amin about what happened with SpankPay um, and and how crypto might have been involved. I do know that you know as much promise as there is in 
sort of decentralized banking or, or blockchain banking, whether it's it, crypto sort of more commonly, you know, in terms of removing the banks, right? We're, we're removing theoretically um, moving to some sort of direct payments or something that would be, um, you know, that wouldn't be controlled by Chase or JP Morgan or whoever it is. Um, what we've seen in reality is that one, crypto has a, a lot of enemies, right? And it's viewed with a lot of suspicion. So for us as a, you know, an already, an industry already under suspicion, um, our, you know, crypto, you know, holds promise, but also it's sort of a double whammy, right? If you're using crypto and you're adult, then for a lot of people, you're doubly suspicious. What are you doing with that money? Where is it coming from? Um, is it illegal? Is it trafficking money? Is it coming from overseas? Is there CSAM, right? The, People can't, you know, it, it, it doesn't, at least from the outside, for a lot of regulators and a lot of specters, it seems to be, you know, it doesn't seem to be transparent. And so they start wondering if there's money laundering or, or crimes happening, right? That hurts us. I think that it also hurts us that, um, you know, crypto wants to become more mainstream. And so what we see are wallets and, you know, other ways of accessing it, distancing themselves from the adult industry, right? They don't, they're, they're still worried about the, you know, the, the same anti-trafficking regulations or things like FOSTA-SESTA, you know, which was legislation that, you know, increased scrutiny on platforms, uh, theoretically about trafficking, um, you know, or offline sex work, in-person sex work, even though theoretically, crypto is theoretically uh, a solution for us, it often has the same issues, or we run into the same issues with crypto as we do with traditional banking. Yeah, that's it's it's very frustrating. I did think for a while crypto might be a at least a, a potential way out, like you were saying, from Chase's and Wells Fargo's controlling our destiny. Um, now it's not quite looking like that anymore. And I, I mentioning Warren, I I've seen her talk about trying to pull crypto companies under the same regulations that the banks are under. Which I mean, I, I on the one hand I understand where she's trying to go. On the other hand, it's like, damn it, that's exactly what we're trying to avoid. Um, now a, another big um, financial discrimination issue that hit. The adult industry is, as you mentioned, it's not just about bank accounts. There's also the credit card processing side. And you mentioned Pornhub was 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 purchased by a new um, a new group um, that are that are hopefully going to um, be uh, more engaged with the uh, sex worker community and with adult businesses. I'm very hopeful for that based on their initial sure. statements, at least. Um, obviously, actions speak louder than words. So we keep a watch on them, but so far so good. They're saying the right things. Um, do you think? Pornhub was, for those who don't know, um, Pornhub was a really important source of revenue for a lot of sex workers. And it suddenly just got ripped away from them when Visa and MasterCard decided, hey, we're not going to be involved with you anymore. Um, do you think this new entity, this new group, do you see reason to be optimistic that Pornhub might be able to get that ability to process back, thus returning that source of revenue you know, to I sex think workers? That the promise is certainly there. And, and I have not spoken with them directly, you know, the, the new owners about this, I have, you know, obviously spoken, you know, uh, have a relationship with, with, with people at MindGeek and then also are, are watching the same statements that, that you are doing, uh, or that you are reading, right. That they are much more engaged. They're much more transparent in terms of talking about what's going on and what they're hoping. Um, you know, if I were to speculate and then really this is, is, uninformed speculation. Um, you know, I would say that if you are going to come in and purchase 
a company like this and really invest you know, they've been vocal in its defense, right? Both in terms of, you know, the accusations that are made against it and also the quality of its its technology in terms of uh, stopping CSAM and revenge porn and, and things like that. Um, I have to think that if you were going to come in and make a purchase like that, you have to have a plan to get back processing, right? I think that obviously, you know, OnlyFans right now is is is, you know, arguably, you know, one of the, uh, the the biggest. I mean, it's, it's certainly one of the biggest companies in in operating in the adult space. I know that they're not necessarily adult identified, but operating in the adult space. You know, none of that traffic comes from OnlyFans, right? That that traffic largely comes from outside the the platform. I think that performers would really love a situation in which they were able to sell their clips and sell their content on a platform that could drive traffic to them. And I think that that's the promise of Pornhub, right? Is that, that, that ultimately, you know, you could be able to, like people use it still to drive traffic uh, to their, um, you know, to their OnlyFans or to their fan sites or to their campsites or, or things like that. I was talking to a performer recently who was looking at the numbers. You know, she had sort of done a survey of her own fans and had found that, you know, Pornhub was one of the top sources of traffic, you know, for how people discovered her. So, you know, I think that there is a lot of promise there. I don't know what is going on under the hood and 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 what those uh, plans look like, but I, I am hopeful that that is part of the equation that, um, led to the the sale. Yeah. You know, the frustrating thing with Pornhub is as somebody who goes back to 97 in this industry, um, I watched them emerge as a very uh, shadowy entity that nobody knew who the hell they were at first running um, under a Manwin, buying up properties right and left. Um, you know, it's like, who are these guys? Then uh, we watched as Pornhub completely destroyed. It's funny. You mentioned you were working with, mm-hmm. um, was it Naked Sword until 2008, you said? And then you said 2008, 2009. I'm like, well, I have a feeling I know why you weren't like working with them after that because like that was when we had the financial crash. And at that point, the um, the pay site model yeah. across the board was just getting decimated by Pornhub. I mean, they, there was all – everybody's content was just getting stolen and uploaded to Pornhub. They destroyed – they wreaked havoc on so many good people and businesses that like my initial um, impression of them mm-hmm. was um, was not good. Right. Um, I watched friends just get destroyed, get run out of the business who I had known for a long time. Um, yeah. It was like when Walmart shows up into a small town and just destroys all the local businesses. That's what Pornhub was doing. They were giving away for free that which was only being sold before uh, and doing it on such a large scale that like people just weren't buying um, pay site subscription anymore. In that time from that early destructive phase, little by little by little, they started moving in a better direction, better direction, better direction. And then ultimately ended up at this place where everybody was making a lot of um, money off of them. And they were, um, I think, um, a little bit more um, careful about like, you know, what was responding to people when copyrighted stuff was uploaded, et cetera. And then that's when they get hit. Now, from watching them, so the Pornhub thing with Visa MasterCard, I think sort of really hit 
fever point when Nicholas Kristof from the New York Times wrote what I would call a very calculated hit job on the company. So they took a couple of edge cases or he took a couple of edge cases, right? And highlighted it as if this stuff was going on on Pornhub all the time, right? Um, nobody wants somebody who was involved in non-consensual uh, you know, um, explicit videos to end up on Pornhub. Nobody wants um, child pornography to end up on uh, on Pornhub. Everybody's against these things. The the level of incidence of that on Pornhub, though, is microscopic compared to like Instagram, Facebook, etc. And there's like government reports that back this up. There's research that backs this up. It's not even close, right? But Kristoff specifically targeted Pornhub. And he was going to run for governor of Oregon, like right after he put out this, like, you know, this big, what I would say, you know, looks like a hit job to me. Right. And he wants to run for governor of Oregon. Fortunately, that didn't work out. (laughs) Oregon said he didn't qualify. So his political campaign sputtered, I guess, before it got off. I'm very suspicious when I see stuff like that. I'm thinking look, you're using our industry as some sort of a you know, um, little campaign launching platform and you're misleading your readers about what our industry is all about. I remember that article and reading the comments in that article. See, how are people reacting to this? And normally when somebody's like, hey, let's go get porn, there's a lot of comments like, you know, hey, watch your own kids or don't tell me what to do. There's a lot of that resistance. There was not to Christos piece. He wrote it in such a way that everybody was like, oh, my God, I can't believe this is going on. You know, so horrible. You're doing great work. It was nothing but supportive comments like to this guy. And that was when I was like, "Uh oh, we have a problem here. Now, what I'm wondering is we have Kristoff doing that. That led specifically to financial discrimination for the biggest company in our industry. Um, We see other organizations trying to do that exact same thing. They're misleading people, um, I would say, purposely, but maybe just through their own ignorance on what our industry is all about, um, trying to get to a point of discrimination against us. What is the right thing for us to do as an industry to respond to that? How do we respond to this kind of misinformation so that these people aren't the only ones talking about our industry? So I think that one of the things that FSC has made a concerted effort to do, particularly under Alison Bowden, who is our new executive director, um, is to really be in those conversations, right? Because I think that there's something that happens when you work an adult where you sort of discount yourself, right? That the idea that a legislator is going to talk to you or a regulator talk to you or that a a um you know uh, a tech institute or you know whatever it is is going to listen to what you want that you're going to be sort of like the run in the room but actually we're experts in this we know so much more about stopping csam and revenge porn than any other industry because we're on the front lines right we know that um, you know, I compare sort of moderation in the adult industry to high altitude running. We know that bad actors are going to try to use our sites. And so we've developed tools that no one else has in order stopping CSAM and, and stopping revenge porn and things like that. Does it mean that we are perfect? No. Does it mean that we were could have been better earlier? Sure. But I think that, you know, you look at the, the new Pornhub documentary on Netflix, you know, and there is a moderator in there talking about how he had to go through all of these videos. You know, he, he had too many videos to watch and he couldn't always react. And there was so much stuff happening um, that, that didn't get t- taken down quickly enough or that, you know, things like that. And and the reality is, is that even that, even you know, someone saying I had to watch so many hundreds of hours of videos or scroll through or, or find this content before it could go live. Even that, which is probably talking 10 years ago, even that is 
way above where Facebook or Reddit is today or, or Twitter, right? When you post something on Twitter or Facebook or Reddit, it goes live immediately on Instagram. I can post a photo. It appears immediately. I want to send a message to someone in a private chat. I can send it to someone on Facebook immediately. It doesn't get moderated before it goes out. And that's their value proposition, right? They want immediacy. That's what they need to survive. That's what social media is. Pornhub, 10 years ago, longer than that, right? Probably from the beginning of when they were they were doing it, had moderation, not just human moderation, but AI, right? Looking for keywords, taking things out, and blocking things before they could ever appear. So when these groups are saying, well, it takes, you know, it only took an hour for this video to appear, and I tried it out, and I did this, it's so disingenuous because that is still so much better than what these other platforms are doing. And I think that one of the things that I found so um, powerful and, and, and you know, uh, exciting about the, the new MindGeek owners was them saying, like, listen, we have best in class technology. We have the protocols. We think that this is actually an income stream. We think that we can teach people on other platforms how to do it. And I think that, I mean, if you remember, Twitter tried to launch something. Uh, there was a report that came out last year about how Twitter had looked into building an OnlyFans competitor. And they just gave up because they said, you know what, we don't know how to do that moderation. We don't know, they don't know what 2257 is, right? They don't know about model releases or how to guard against bad actors. Um, you know, I've worked with tube sites. I have worked with fan sites. I know the challenges that go into that. But again, we are still so much better than where we are. So I think that, you know, being able to, to discuss that, you know, you know, legislatively, regulatorily, um, you know, in, in press, you know, at the banks, we are doing, you know, FSC is, again, we are a small underfunded organization and it is hard for us to do all the things that we need to be doing for this industry. And I always encourage people to donate or become members if they are not members, because it really does, you know, a small amount really makes a huge difference. But we can be at those tables and we can have that discussion and we can start educating people so that, you know, Christoph is going to write what he's going to write. He's spoke, you know, it seemed almost exclusively to Nikosi and Exodus Cry, two anti-porn organizations. They really shaped how that article was written, um, you know, and he whitewashed their their um, their background so that it would be that they wouldn't appear to be faith based organizations um, and wouldn't be thus suspicious. But. You know, we can limit the damage that we can do if we're talking to the banks, if we're talking to the credit card companies, if we ha are engaged in a dialogue, I think that we're a lot more effective. So we're never going to stop the anti-porn people from doing what they're going to do, but I think that we can limit the damage the same way that you know a hurricane is coming, you 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 put up boards on the walls, right? You, you, you know, or an earthquake in California, you have to go pack, you have retrofitted your businesses to, to withstand it. But really, the most important thing is being at those tables when these discussions are being made. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm actually, again, this is why I'm hopeful with the new Pornhub ownership. Um, that organization, that company has a tremendous amount of potential power with respect to getting our side of the story out because the press like on the one hand, yeah, they'll listen to the FSC. They probably won't listen to smaller companies. Pornhub, though, gets clicks. Everybody knows Pornhub and they know it. It's just one of those things that if they see Pornhub saying something, doing something, they will pay attention, which means that company in our industry is one of the few. Mm -hmm. Only fans would potentially be another who is in this unique position of being able to engage with the press and get what they want to say actually out there to, to the mainstream. Um, I, I just think that's so important. Um, 
in the past, I felt like they're just too, they were just too like, hey, we're doing our own thing over here. We don't really need anybody else. Um, they weren't engaged with the industry as a whole. Now, all of a sudden, I'm hoping that they're seeing that, you know what, there's there's a reason why we need an industry. We can't just yeah. be these little islands all over the place. Uh, we need an industry. And, and we need them to engage. Like all of us really need them to engage yeah. and to be good at what they do when they engage and to um, to put our best foot forward. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed. And that might, right, like in general, if Christoph did successfully put pressure on the payment processors that ended up resulting in, it just goes to show what press, what public relations, the damage it can do, then pushing back and and easing that pressure off the payment processors, I would think would help like reduce the number of instances of this happening in the industry. Does that sound reasonable? No, I mean, I think that like, again, we have to, we always have to have backups. We always have to like, we shouldn't only be dealing with things when they hit a crisis. We need to be doing the work. And I think that we are an organization right. that is, exactly. you know, often a wild west and, and built by people and run by people who are independent minded. And that makes them good at what they do and creative and, and interesting. And, and they don't like rules and they don't like regulations and things like that. But, um, you know, I think that we need to to always make sure that whether it's you know political work or cultural work or work on our own companies and, and financial work that we are doing the hard work even when you know before the storm hits because we need to be prepared we need to be better prepared next time okay great yeah i've taken up a ton of your time i really i know you're a busy guy i really appreciate you uh coming great. on the show this is such an important issue so i just wanted to close by just kind of asking you to talk to everybody who's listening um who's maybe you know moved by this discussion or, or, or agrees that this is an important topic what what can they do what would you ask them to do uh how can they get involved to sort of help um push back so against the first this financial thing I would discrimination say is, if you are a member of this industry if you earn money in the adult industry become a member of free speech coalition become a dues paying member it is not terribly expensive you know but it's really important not only that we have that that sort of st- that income, right? That we can continue to do these things that we can that we can afford to go to DC, which was a real struggle in December, right? And we still haven't found the budget to go in May, right? These are this is sort of where we are. I'm a part time employee, right? I, I don't do this full time. I mean, I'm not even an employee, um, but you know, join, right? This is this is an investment in your business and the the stability of your business. This isn't you know give to you know the, you know, the ASPCA, right? God bless them. But like, this is, you know, not, you know, animal welfare. This is something that has a direct, it is an investment in your business. The other thing that I would say is educate yourself. One of the things that I saw happen in the wake of the Nick Kristoff piece was a lot of people read that, had no idea of what happens with moderation on Pornhub, had no idea how to tell the difference between, you know, what Kristoff is claiming and reality. And, just sort of absorbed it, right? And and so I still often hear people repeating things that, that come from the mainstream media. If I, I do your homework, I mean, you know, follow FS, you know, at FSC Army on Twitter. You can follow me at, at Mike Stabile on Twitter. Um, you know, I'm always happy to answer questions, but it helps when push comes to shove, when a crisis happens, we need everybody to be as educated as possible because we are the messengers. The advantage that this industry has, thank God, from, you know, especially after the, the fan explosion, is that we have 
over a million people who are making money in this industry, right? That is a powerful force. That's a powerful voter base for legislators, but it's also a powerful advocacy force to go out there and to, to educate your fans, you know, to educate your family about what's actually happening and, and to be able to answer the questions when they push back and they say, well, I saw this article and, you know, it, it, those can be hard things to defend. So be invested in your industry. Couldn't agree more, man. Thank you uh, again so much for being on. I watch your work on Twitter with uh, great interest and great admiration. Um, I know it's not uh, easy sometimes to uh, to especially to be oh, so consistently right. good. Like I, I, I don't think I've ever seen you make those. a misstep. <laughs> so that's really hard to do. Most of it. Yeah, when we're okay, that's because you delete them very fast. And uh, congratulations on your appearance in uh, Money Shot on Netflix. That was, I thought, uh, a really wonderful documentary for our industry. Um, it was, it did present, you know, both sides, but it also was, I thought, very fair and presented sex worker voices yep, in a way absolutely. that I hadn't seen the documentary do. So I just wanted to say uh, I admired your work on that one as well. So I appreciate you being out there. Um, yeah, I appreciate and, you and having thanks me for on. coming on the show. Hopefully, we'll be able to have Anytime. you back at a later time sometime. Yeah, and I would urge everybody to um, to follow those steps that you've uh, laid out there to uh, to kind of get involved in this industry, uh, this issue rather, uh, financial discrimination. So, thank you very much, Mike. We really appreciate you. All right, thanks, Hunter. I appreciate it.